Good morning. Uh, my name is Zane Pingleton. Uh, I am excited to be here with you all this morning. I'm uh, one of the missionaries that the church, uh, Chatham Community Church, partners with. Uh, my mission field is uh, UNC uh, on campus. I work for InterVarsity, uh, and I am going into my 11th year on staff with InterVarsity. This will be my sixth year at UNC. And uh, normally, I, when I get asked to fill in, it's up at North Chatham when Alex is out. So I was excited to come and to be able to speak with you all today. Um, I have been here on this stage before. A few years ago, kind of as COVID was starting to tail off, we did our uh, annual chapter retreat that we usually go out of town for. We did it here. Uh, and so I've been on this stage, but it was speaking to about uh, 75 students. So this is a little different uh, than what I'm used to, but I'm excited to be with you all today. And I'm excited to be joining you in your Signature Moments series. And tonight, or today, we're going to be uh, focusing on King Saul, um, the first king chosen, uh, appointed by God over Israel. And I'm excited to be speaking out of the New Testament. I know when sometimes when we read the Old Testament, especially when it's a long chunk of text like we just read, it can be easy to kind of just get lost in it and be like, okay, like, where's this going? What's the point? But if you think of it like, uh, TV shows that you watch, like this is like high drama. Like there's no king and then there's a new king and, he, and the king's not really supposed to be there. It's exciting if we think about it that way. So just keep that in mind this morning. Now, if we're going to look at the life of Saul, we probably should note that there was never really supposed to be a Saul in the first place. See, all throughout the Bible, we have this story of empire versus God's kingdom. And for many of us, this story uh, about two kingdoms is like a secondary storyline. We've been taught that the Bible is mostly about moral obedience or lack thereof and imputed righteousness. And, and it is about those things. But if you go and you read the scriptures, what you'll find is these two competing stories battling uh, for supremacy all throughout scripture. And one of the first places that we see this story play out is when God's people are slaves in Egypt under Pharaoh. See, while in slavery, God's people are influenced by two competing narratives. And the Egyptian narrative goes like this. In the beginning, there was a watery swamp, and the swamp represents chaos. And rising out of the swamp, there was a mound. And the creator God, which varies depending on where you were in Egypt, stood on the mound and created. He separated the waters above from the waters below. And in the chasm that exists between the two waters is where life exists. So that's their story that the gods have separated the waters. There's water above them and there's water below them. And it's the gods' job to hold up the waters of the sky. Now that's great, unless you're really terrified of water and you're nervous about angry gods letting the water fall on you, right? Like uh, they were very worried about floods uh, in, in Egypt. Uh, they were worried that the gods would become angry and let the waters of the sky uh, collapse in on them and chaos would resume. So in their story... There's one guy who's responsible for maintaining the system of order and keeping the gods happy, and his name is Pharaoh. So in their system, uh, Pharaoh was intimately linked to the gods and was his job to kind of protect order and prevent chaos. So in the Egyptian world, Pharaoh's job is to keep order. So who makes the sun come up? Well, the gods do if Pharaoh does his job. Who makes the Nile flood every year so that your crops will grow? Well, the gods do if Pharaoh does his job. Who protects your children? Well, the gods do if Pharaoh does his job. The gods are intimately linked to nature, and in nature, the strong devour the weak. 
In the Egyptian story, Pharaoh and other strong humans are exalted and they're eventually deified, made into gods, because just like in nature, the strong are valued over the weak. And if humans who have power are given such a prominent role, then, there are the, then they're the ones who get to determine morality. So in the story of empire, there's a price tag. The, the old and the poor and the slaves and the children who are thrown into the Nile, they're expendable in the story because it's Pharaoh's job to protect order. And if he says this is what it's going to take to appease the gods, so be it. In the story of empire, there's a high price tag. The, the cost is injustice. The, the means of enforcement is fear. Now, the Bible presents a really different story. The Bible presents us with a story of a God who speaks and brings order to nothingness. He creates a perfect system in which he declares all things to be good and mankind to be his representatives. Now, mankind does fail in their representation of God, and slowly we see a descent back into chaos. But in the story of God's kingdom, we don't see a God who is threatening to stop holding up the sky. We see a God who remembers the goodness of his creation. We see a God who remembers his people, and he sets his bow in the sky as a sign that he will never destroy them. We see a God who's merciful and compassionate. We see a God who agrees to shoulder the burden of his people when they fail to uphold their end of the covenants. We see a God who gives generously and is hospitable. And ultimately, we see a God who invites his people to trust in the goodness of the story. And he charges them to care for the most vulnerable amongst them. The morality of God's kingdom demands that his people lift up the poor, the oppressed, the orphan, the widow, and the foreigner in their midst. In the kingdom of God, people are valued and protected. Because the narrative of the Bible, the narrative of this new kingdom that God presents is one of trust. And the cost is justice and peace. So in order to truly understand Saul's story, we have to be aware of the tug of war that's going on between these stories of empire and shalom. The people are struggling to leave behind the story of empire while God is constantly trying to offer them a better way, a new story. God delivers his people out from Egypt and takes them to the desert to begin shaping them into the people that he's called them to be. In Exodus 19, God says, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. See, here's the problem with Saul's story from the very beginning. God's people are not supposed to be like every other nation. They're supposed to be a nation of priests. They're supposed to be sheep who know how to follow the voice of their shepherd. In our passage, when the people demand a king, God instructs Samuel to warn them. It's Samuel's job to remind them how the other story goes. If they really want to be like every other nation, if you demand a king, he will enlist your sons to fight in his armies and to plow his fields. He will enlist your daughters to be his perfumers and bakers. He will take the best from your fields and from your flocks. God doesn't hold back. It's a clear warning. 
And yet the people demand that a king be appointed. The people decide that they want to be like every other nation, no matter the consequences. And look, when we read stuff like this in the Bible, it's really easy to roll our eyes and be like, man, what foolish people. Like God warns them. He tells them directly, why are they doing this? Why won't they listen? But are we so different? Because look, things aren't going so well in in Israel during this time. The Philistines are a real problem. They're a threat. Invasion is looming. Samuel's getting old and his sons are corrupt. They're not good uh, prophets. They're not ready, suited to take his title. And the people are concerned. So how do we respond when we feel backed into a corner? Because they do. They feel threatened and cheated and afraid. What is your go-to move when you're being squeezed from every direction? How do you act when you feel like your values are being threatened and the culture around you becomes unrecognizable? Because it's so easy to turn, to, to trust in the goodness of God and the narrative of his kingdom when things are good. But what about when they're not? What about when you don't see the way out? What about when you don't know what the next step is? Is it so easy to trust in the, in the good story? I know that when I feel squeezed and when life feels like it's spiraling out of control, it's easy for me to, to reach for more power and more influence. Give us a king so that we can fight back against the evil that surrounds us. Never mind the fact that by demanding a king, the Israelites risk becoming just like the nations that they feel threatened by. The people never ask to return to Egypt. They just want some of the methods of Egypt to protect themselves. Send us a leader who can deliver us. Make it someone strong who can fight for us. The story doesn't seem so good right now. Let's use some of those tactics. Let's fight like they do. Are we so different? The narrative of empire is built on fear. And this is the introduction to Saul. In some ways, Saul's story is more about the people than it is about Saul himself. And one thing that really stands out to me is that even though the people's request is clearly not what God wants for them, he still decides to grant it. And in the beginning of chapter 9, we get our first description of the king that the people have requested. There was a powerful man from Benjamin named Kish, who was the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Becherah, son of Aphia, a Benjamite. He had a son named Saul, who was a handsome young man. There was no other Israelite more handsome than Saul. He stood head and shoulders above the people. Now the donkeys of Saul's father, Kish, had wandered off. Kish said to his son, Saul, take one of the servants with you and go hunt for the donkeys. This is the king that the people want. Remember, they feel threatened. They are afraid. And they want someone who they think can fight for them, who can fight back against what they perceive as these big threats. Someone to protect them. They want to be like all the other nations. Enter Saul. He's handsome and young and tall. He looks like a king. The Bible says he's literally a head taller than everyone else. Now, I work with college students, and for like the past four years, they've been really, really tall. Uh, And I'm not very tall. I'm like 5'9". Some of these guys are like 6'5". They're a head taller than me. I go to talk to them, and I'm supposed to have authority in this situation, and I'm like this, talking to these college-age guys, right? 
the, the guy who's tall and stands above the crowd, he, he looks uh, menacing in some ways. He looks like the authority figure. That's Saul. That's who they've asked for. Now, the only other information that we get about Saul is that he's sent by his father to round up donkeys. And I love this part of the story. Uh, total transparency. Uh, they're doing this same uh, uh, sermon series, obviously, at the North Chatham location today. And when I met with Alex earlier this week to talk about this, he didn't include this donkey part in there, but I had to because I just love this part of the story. And I know you're like, what? It's, it's just the setting, right? He's just going to look for donkeys. What's important about that? I, I know it might seem insignificant, but think about it. One of the most common images that God uses to describe himself throughout the scriptures is shepherd. Genesis 48, 15 Then he blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked faithfully, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day. Genesis 49, 24. But his bow remained steady, his strong arm stayed limber because of the hand of the mighty one of Jacob, because of the shepherd, the rock of Israel. Ezekiel 34, 11. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them as a shepherd looks after his flock. When he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they are scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. Now, Jesus adopts the same image when he describes himself as the good shepherd and says that his sheep will know his voice. Now, most of us have the wrong image in mind when we think of shepherds because our image of shepherds is a shepherd's hook, right? You get candy canes at Christmas. That's our image of shepherds. The shepherd's staff, the shepherd's hook. And so we kind of think that the way that shepherds gather sheep is by, like, I guess, hooking them and dragging them. Uh, but that's not what being a shepherd's like. Uh, instead of me trying to explain it, let me show you with a video that we have. As part of the shepherd lesson, I did want to look at one thing in the wilderness that will maybe surprise you a bit. Believe it or not, this is called wilderness, midbar but it's also called green pastures. Now, when you take a Westerner here the first time and you look at this, you find people say, well, I don't know that I can go there because the Psalm 23, the Lord leads me into green pastures has been pictured as belly deep alfalfa. Well, you haven't seen any belly deep alfalfa. And from biblical time to today, it's rare to see a flock in the farm country. There isn't a lot of farm country in this culture. And so farmers kept the shepherds out as much as they could. Maybe they would come in a little bit after the harvest to glean what was left, but you don't want sheep where you can farm. This is the land of the shepherd. Right on the hillside across from us, you can see those grazing trails cut there by sheep maybe as long ago as Abraham's time. They're spaced so that an animal on one path and an animal on another can reach right to the middle between them. That determines the distance, so you can graze an entire hillside. And the shepherds lead their sheep across that hillside slowly, grazing what's there. Now, you look at it from here and you say, what's there? In fact, I remember my first impression. I woke up one morning, I was sleeping out in the wilderness, and I remember waking up, watching a flock of sheep on a hillside like this, and my, re my feeling was, what are those rock-eating sheep? I mean, what do they eat? How can you call this green pastures? Well, the answer is, 
There's a small amount of moisture present here. They get a little bit of rain every year. Not much, but a little. Second, there is humidity in the air, especially in the evening breeze, like right now. You can feel it coming from the west off the Mediterranean. There's moisture in the air. That moisture, combination of the rain and the humidity, condenses or drips along the edge of these rocks here. And if you notice, right around the rocks, almost always next to the rocks, you get little tufts of green. Get one a moment. That's what we refer to as the green pastures. So the shepherd looks for a hillside. That's exactly what she was doing. Look at that flock across from us there, just stunning. Those two shepherd girls have found a hillside that either was exposed to the wind or had that small amount of rain. And they move that flock across the hillside and it's one mouthful here, walk a step or two, another mouthful, another mouthful, another mouthful. Now that changes the green pasture image a little bit besides the picture changing radically. Green pastures are not everything you need for the rest of your life. If you make that belly deep alfalfa, then what God is saying, if you follow me, I'm gonna plunk you down and you'll never have to move an inch the rest of your life. Just reach out and grab it. Tell me that your life with God has been like that. Worry, said one rabbi, is dealing with tomorrow's problems on today's pasture. In the desert, you learn, the shepherd will get you what you need for right now. 10 minutes from now, you trust the shepherd. Just enough. So, I, I love that. It's great. Uh, he does a whole series. You should watch it. His name's Ray Vanderlaan. Um, if this is the land of the shepherds, if the desert is the land of the shepherds, which undoubtedly it is in Scripture, in, in, he, in the Hebrew language, there's no vowels. There's just breath marks with consonants to tell you how to pronounce words. So there's word trees where it's like they all use the same words, and then there's different breath marks. Desert and sheep are the same word tree. They're, they're literally sheep, shepherds, they're people of the desert. So if this is the land of the shepherds, and they're leading sheep across these huge hillsides, then hooking them with your staff and dragging them along doesn't work so well. So instead, shepherds lead with their voice. In the desert, a flock of sheep will know the voice of their shepherd so distinctly that you can actually corral multiple flocks together, and then the next morning, each individual shepherd can call out for their sheep, and only their sheep will come out to follow them. And the other sheep will go and follow their shepherd. These are the images that God uses so often when he describes his relationship with his people. So take this back to our introduction to Saul. The first thing we learn about the future king of Israel is that he's out trying to herd his father's lost donkeys who are so stubborn that he can't even manage to find them. He actually searches the whole passage and he never finds them. Someone else finds them. He doesn't even manage to find them. I don't think that's a random detail. God's people were supposed to be a flock of sheep, and God was going to be their shepherd. They were to know his voice and trust that even when they didn't have all the answers apparently in front of them, or that they saw a way out, that their shepherd would provide for their needs. He would lead them to their next mouthful, to the next thing that they needed. And instead, they're like a herd of donkeys, too stubborn to be found, 
and God anoints a donkey herder to lead them. I think he's doing that on purpose. And, and, if, and if you're not quite convinced yet, you're like, look, cool, but I don't know yet, like maybe. Think about the next king who gets appointed over Israel after Saul fails and loses God's anointing. Saul is a tall, handsome donkey herder, exactly who the people want. The next man who will be anointed king over Israel is David, the youngest son of Jesse, who's still a little boy herding his father's sheep when he's anointed by Samuel. Clearly, Saul is a central character in this story, and I don't want to ignore that fact and, uh, and ignore the fact that God still manages to work in the midst of this messy and broken situation. But it's impossible to study this passage without asking the question, are we willing to be the flock that God has called us to be? Or are we demanding that God raise up a donkey herder because we are lost, stubborn, afraid, backed into a corner, unable to see what's next, unable to see where the next meal will be provided, unable to see a way out of the darkness, and failing to trust our shepherd, demand to use the methods of everyone else. Sheep aren't wandering around the desert in belly-deep alfalfa. They don't always see where the next meal is going to come from, but they know one thing. They trust the shepherd. Do you? I don't know what circumstances are present in your life. I don't know the ways that you are being squeezed. Maybe it's hard to see your deliverance. Maybe it's hard to trust the voice of the shepherd. Welcome to the circumstances of 1 Samuel 8 and 9. That is what the people of God are feeling in this story. And sometimes trusting in God means being willing to follow him even where we don't know where the next steps are going to lead. Sometimes trusting in God means believing that even when we feel threatened and pressed upon that the, by the world around us, because it's changing so fast that we can't keep up, that we can still follow and trust him, the shepherd. We don't have to fight back with the tools that all the other people seem to be using because the story that God is writing is based in trust and not fear. So are we willing to be the people that God is calling us to be? Or are we foolish enough to think that surely we can use their methods, we can fight back with their tools, but we won't become like them? That's what these people thought. No, we're still going to be a set-apart nation. We're still going to be God's people. Just give us a king so that we can kind of be like them, so that we can fight back. Surely it won't affect us. It does. So uh, now we, we have to wrestle with something because God clearly has some issues with the idea of appointing a king. This isn't who he called his people to be, and he has Samuel tell them exactly how it's going to go wrong. So, so why does he have Samuel anoint Saul as king? Why does God change Saul's heart? Well, one conclusion that we can draw is that God's enduring love for his people compels him to move even in the midst of the mess. Even when they are refusing to act like the people that he called them to be, he was still committed to working amongst them. Look, the truth is the line of kings is mostly a disaster. Three kings after Saul, the entire nation of Israel divides into two separate kingdoms because they can't agree on the line of succession. There are something like 40 kings throughout the kingdoms of Judah and Israel, and by the most generous, and I mean generous, of estimates, like 
five of them are good. And even the good ones have black marks on their record. Uh, Worse yet, the people demand a king because they feel threatened and pressed down upon. They want someone to be raised up to protect them in a military sense. And if you know anything about the history of Israel and Judah, both kingdoms are conquered and occupied, if not totally destroyed uh, or exiled, multiple times throughout their existence. You could say that there is an overarching narrative at play. The people were supposed to be set apart to trust God as their king. Instead, they demand an earthly king, and they suffer the consequences of that decision time and again until God eventually comes and assumes his place as their king in the form of Jesus. He brings Jesus to usher in a new kingdom and begin his reign. Only his coronation is a crucifixion. And instead of overthrowing the empire, he dies hanging on the most potent symbol of the empire's rule, a cross used for torture. So that the people might be set free from the thing that truly oppresses them. This is the story that plays out amongst the kings. So I'm not sure that we're supposed to read this and look at Saul's life and try to imitate him. I don't know that an appropriate application of this passage is to tell you that you should be more like Saul in these ways. Make yourself more tall and handsome. You can do it. Uh, I don't think that that's the point. (laughs) I don't think that that's what we're supposed to do when we read this. I mean, look, even after the man has received the Lord's anointing, when they go to anoint him king, they find him hiding amongst the luggage. The king who they think they're getting, the tall, strong one, is too afraid to be anointed. He's hiding when they call his name. They have to go drag him out from behind the suitcases. And then they're like, man, he's tall. Yeah, but he was hiding amongst the suitcases. This is the guy? I don't think you're supposed to read this and be like, oh, I should be like Saul. And in spite of all of that, God decides to work. Even as he's weaving a much grander story, even as he's letting the people suffer the consequences of their choices, he doesn't leave them. He pours out a blessing on a new king and changes his heart. Saul even manages to accomplish a few things as king before it all goes off the rails. And that matters because though the takeaway from this passage isn't that you should be more like Saul, some of us can relate to finding ourselves in a mess. Maybe you fell back into a corner and and you didn't decide to trust the shepherd. You started swinging and now you're out dealing with the fallout. Maybe you found yourself halfway down a road that you never meant to be on. And you're quite sure that it's not where God wants you to be. I've got news for you. The Israelites sure aren't where God wants them to be in this story. And yet he's still with them. He shows up in the mess while the bigger story is slowly developing. God will join you in the midst of the mess. I work with college students and I often field questions about how to find your way back uh, to God in the midst of difficult circumstances. And I love telling students, you don't have to work very hard to find God. He found you. Turn around. He is still the God who decides to leave the 99 sheep to go after the one who is lost. He is still the father who waits and watches for his disobedient son and runs out to meet him when he catches a glimpse of him on the horizon. And if you feel like you're wandering far from God or don't even know where to begin to find him, turn around. I have a strong feeling that he's already there with you in the mess. 
Because time and time again, story after story, where we are forced to confront the people's disobedience and in so doing confront our disobedience, the thing that we consistently see is God there with them over and over and over. I think that we are still the type of people who are prone to make a mess when the right answer and the next step is not immediately clear. I think we are still the type of people who are prone to try to seize power and influence when we feel threatened and out of control. I think we are still the type of people who will turn to the methods of everyone else when we feel pressured and squeezed. And I think that God is still the type of God who walks with us even in the midst of the mess, despite the consequences. My evidence is this, Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. The gospel sets us free from our mess in some ways. You still might be dealing with it for a while. You still might walk through those consequences for a while, but you do not have to walk alone. God walks with you, and he invites you to put your trust in a different story, a better one, not one that's dictated by fear, but one that calls you to trust and to follow the voice of the shepherd. And by God's grace, each day, we can walk closer and closer, learning the voice of the shepherd more and more. And when we fail, we can be forgiven because God is with us. I'm going to pray for us as the worship team comes back up and leads us. Uh, Father, <laughs> look, we're a bit of a mess. We, in, in our fear and in our kind of un, not understanding what comes next or where our deliverance might come from, in the midst of life circumstances that are challenging, maybe within our family, maybe within our, our, our communities, maybe at work. God, we get backed into a corner and we kind of are like, what method should we use here? And we, we're like, just make us like everybody else. Get us out, whatever means necessary. But God, you, you are a, a, the good shepherd. And your voice leads us to the, the thing we need next. And the thing we need next. And sometimes we resist the desert. We want to run away from it. But God, it's in the desert that we learn what it is to be your people. To trust your voice. To know what you sound like. So God, I pray today that no matter what corner we might find ourselves in, no matter what ways we might be feeling pressed upon, that we would be the type of people who trust in the goodness of your story because you made a way for us. You sent your son to die for us. And that is enough. So God, we will trust your story and not lean into others. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Please stand and let's continue worshiping together.